0: Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrak. The University of New Mexico recently held its second annual Research Discovery Week. As part of that, 10 graduate students gave short talks highlighting their research in an event called Lobo Bites, which began in 2017. I was honored to be one of the judges this year. On today's show, we'll hear from four of the students about their research, which runs from bringing indigenous paradigms back to anthropology, To the association between traumatic brain injuries and psychopathic traits. Professor Maria Lane is interim dean of graduate studies and coordinated the event.
1: I don't know if people realize how much research our grad students do. I mean, we're all here at an R1 university with these incredible research programs all over campus, and grad students are not only learning research skills, but they're contributing a lot to to research and discovery. The idea of LoboBytes is that we want our grad students to get really great at research communication, speaking clearly for a public audience about what's important about their research. And so the LoboBytes event, they have three minutes to present their research. They get one slide and it's a big challenge to tell your story in that format uh, to a public audience. What's the process for selecting them? Yeah. So the students nominate themselves. They go through our application portal on our website. And then we host a preliminary round. So the week before Lobo Bytes finals, we had four preliminary rounds where we had, you know, judging panels for all four of those. It took the whole day. And from that we selected our top ten finalists to go to the, the competition finals. How did you decide
0: the criteria that they would be judged on?
1: The criteria for LoboBytes match the um, nationwide, or actually it's an international three-minute thesis competition. So we're using that format um, and we designed LoboBytes basically to reflect that international standard. So it's become a real institution on campus where we just see year after year incredible presentations. And I'm always really inspired to see how well these students do. I know... I would be hard-pressed to do a good job in a three-minute format, and I'm a faculty member.
0: And why is it important for them professionally to be able to do this?
1: Well, we talk a lot about research communication because you can do the most incredible research project in the world and come up with a really amazing answer to a super important question. And if you can't communicate it to people who can actually act on that answer or that knowledge that you've produced then it's not gonna be very valuable. Everyone who does research should be good at research communication. And for grad students, it's an important skill to develop, not only because it means they're gonna have more success getting their research results out there, but it's also an important skill when you're looking for a job, whether it's in the private sector or it's in academia, you gotta be able to say quickly what's important about your research. Academics are pretty bad about being succinct in many cases, and it's a stereotype that it's almost impossible to read our papers. And so this is an important skill to be able to really make things intelligible for a lay audience. Every year for this, we invite judges from the community to come and do the judging for the competition finals. And the reason for that is just to really keep the students honest. If we had a panel of professors, it would be different. Students would know that, "Eh, somebody's gonna understand this thing I'm saying that's not totally clear. So it's really great that we have people come out and help us with the judging. Thank you for coming and judging. And I uh, just want to say thanks to all the judges who helped us out with that. It was really great.
0: That was Professor Maria Lane, who coordinated the Lobo Bites event. Now let's hear from some of the presenters.
2: Kumbaki Hot kunidafi. My name is Lauren Hop, and I'm a citizen of the Caddo Nation of Oklahoma. I am currently pursuing my master's degree in Native Studies at UNM and working towards my PhD. My background is in anthropology. The premise of my research is on addressing ongoing aspects of paternalism and colonialism within anthropology that continue to hinder work towards social justice in Native communities. Anthropology is a pretty wide, diverse discipline. Um, It has four aspects within that, including archaeology, linguistic anthropology, and sociocultural anthropology. My work focuses more on cultural anthropology and archaeology. So right now, I'm working to highlight the work of other indigenous archaeologists, primarily in this country, who are working to shift the focus of archaeology to help serve for social justice, particularly with issues around land rights and furthering self-governance and self-determination. How does this go against, I guess I'll call it the dominant paradigm
0: that has existed in these fields?
2: Yeah, so anthropology in the U.S. was originally thought of as salvage. It was an opportunity for non-Indigenous people to go in and try to, won't say save, but try to collect as much information about indigenous peoples, mainly for the benefit of human knowledge is what they would premise it on. It really gets its foundation out of Africa, where during early colonialization, you had uprisings occurring and the uh, Europeans wanted to ensure that that wouldn't happen. And so by understanding people and understanding their cultural values, you then have the tools to break apart their culture and to manipulate people. And so it has continued to be used as salvage. And that is predominantly what's being done today in archeology. span You know, we've got the infrastructure bill in the U S it has gone through. And with that, any new highway, any new building that goes in on public lands has to go through a series of federal regulations that dictate, they need to make sure that they're not going through ancestral sites. And so, if there is an ancestral site, that doesn't mean that the highway project won't go through, what that means is that archaeologists have a limited time to access that area and try to collect and salvage as much as they can before it gets destroyed. So that's kind of where it's been, and right now we're looking at shifting that to refocus on the needs of Indigenous people. Um, The premise right now is also based in extractive research where they want to go into Indigenous communities and see what could be useful outside of that community without really focusing on how that comes back to serve the people that they're benefiting that from. Um, So that's kind of the groundwork that it's on. What do you hope to do with your research going forward? So my tribal community is in Oklahoma. Traditionally, we inhabited um, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And so my goal is to try and get Southeastern archaeology caught up and integrating where we are in the Southwest. The Southwestern tribes have a lot of power. You know, they're very large and they have large land bases. And so We had very different experiences of colonization. We went through lots of land dispossession and displacement and allotment acts that have resulted in a lot of loss of land access, which also contributes to a loss of culture because our language and our medicines and our foods all came from that area. And so when we got displaced from there, we lost that connection. And so a lot of it is working to protect our ancestral sites. Uh, My work is based out of Caddo Mounds State Historic Site in Texas, which has been used by Caddo people for thousands of years. So trying to protect sites in a way that aligns with indigenous people's values, um, because currently it's looked at as Tourist attraction, you know, and it's we're mound builders, so the mounds have our ancestors and they're very sacred to us. So, you know, there is an incongruency on how people view heritage sites. Um, And for those that are non indigenous, they may look at them as national heritage and something of interest and an opportunity, even for educating their children and their family, um, students but without regard for how that may perpetuate violence against indigenous peoples.
0: That was Lauren Haupt, a citizen of the Caddo Nation. She's pursuing a master's degree in Native Studies and working towards a Ph.D. She was a finalist at the Lobo Bites competition. And this is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. I was one of the judges at the Lobo Bites competition, where graduate students showcase their research in three minutes. Next, we have the third place winner.
3: My name is Michaela Mililo. I am a first-year clinical psychology graduate student in the PhD program here, and I am co-mentored by Doctors Kent Keel and Elizabeth Yater. My general focus overall is investigating trauma and in forensic populations. So a lot of my time is spent at the New Mexico prison facilities working with incarcerated populations or justice-involved individuals, and some of that we do in the community with uh, participants or clients like on probation or parole as well. So my presentation was on the association between traumatic brain injury and the development of psychopathic traits. So kind of thinking about like what things make a psychopath. We were working with kids at a youth detention center here at, in Albuquerque. We looked at variables of traumatic brain injury, such as like how severe was the brain injury, how many total TBIs has that person had, and then how old were they at their first age of onset. And we also did recruit a sample of participants with a history of TBI and those who had not experienced them as well. For the psychopathic traits, we use something called the PCL-YV, which is the psychopath checklist and the YV is youth version. Um, and through this interview, we look at a two-factor, four-facet model. So I'll br- I'll break that down a little okay, bit. Okay, thank you. So factor one consists of interpersonal or affective traits that somebody might have if they score higher on like a psychopathic range. So these include things like being a path pathological liar, um, being conning, being manipulative, um, having callous behavioral traits, things like that. And then factor two consists of uh, two facets, which include antisocial and lifestyle traits. So these could be things like we see a lot of impulsivity um, or irresponsibility, uh, likelihood to recidivate, things like that. And then the other life variables that we see are like, how old was this participant when we did the study with them? What was their IQ when we did like neuropsychological testing with them? And then other things like, did this person meet for a mood or anxiety disorder? Did this person have a history of substance use? So that's those are kind of the things that we looked at in the study when we did our analysis. What I'm understanding you found is that justice-involved young
0: people with TBIs were more likely to exhibit... Psychopathic yeah, traits. Yeah.
3: I'll talk about the, the results. So the two main results from how we analyzed the data were um, the more severe someone's TBI was from the sample, the more likely they were to have a lower IQ score. So there was an association between that, not a causation. But in turn, in regards to that relationship, they were also more likely to to score higher on those factor two, those antisocial lifestyle traits. The other founding that we saw was when we looked at total number of TBI, when somebody was more likely to have more TBIs, it was likely that they also engaged in more substance use overall. So whether it's you know severity or type of substance or time that they're using the substance, um, that was likely to be found elevated in that sample and then in turn Both those factor one and those factor two traits were found to be elevated in association with those two variables as well.
0: Did your research include learning how these young people got traumatic brain injuries? I was curious if some of this is from
3: abuse? It's definitely possible. I mean... As somebody who's kind of reviewed files like that, it's not uncommon to see types of abuse, whether it's within like a family setting or in the community. A lot of those adolescents that participated were involved in in gang activity as well. But we also think it might be attributed to through the substance use. So it kind of seems like since the substance use predated the TBI when we looked at those things, it's likely that. You know, these kids might be intoxicated and more likely to get a TBI, and therefore did because of their substance use and kind of their state at the time. So, all factors to definitely take into consideration. And it kind of shows how complicated and how necessary, like a multifaceted approach to treating kids like this, can be. What
0: do you hope might be the outcome of this kind of research, policy wise or practice
3: wise? My goal going into research is to bring it to light that there's a need for this. So I think a changing result in funding and making this more available to children in these households, um, I think, is really important. I think finding treatments that do effectively target these things that are important. So supporting research that tries to find a better technique or a better strategy, maybe develop a better theory based in this would be great and just making it more accessible. I think it's just really difficult when you have samples like this who start very disadvantaged and don't really have a lot of resources. And I think that it's an area that a lot of work can be done in. And what do you hope to do? I really want to continue doing trauma-based research. A lot of the things that I investigate stem from traumatic events, whether it's physical trauma, sexual trauma, emotional abuse, anything that they observe or a part of. It's very important to kind of target how can we mitigate that before other things develop as a result. And I'm really interested in investigating the relationships between that across ages. So how could we possibly implement earlier intervention or making these things even more accessible in screening when somebody's in school rather than when they go to a detention facility, and it's important to target this in adults as well. well just because somebody's already passed their developmental period doesn't mean that it's not important to develop treatments geared towards older adults or or people that are well into their adult years. I'm sure my dissertation will be based in trauma in some sort of way, um, and applying that to justice-involved populations is is the end goal for sure.
0: That was Michaela Mililo, a psychology PhD student. She took third place at the Lobo Bites competition last week, where graduate students have three minutes to communicate their research to an audience. And now the second place winner.
4: My name is Emily Hendricks. I'm getting my PhD, so I'm part of the chemistry and chemical biology program. I work under Dr. E. He as my advisor. My focus of the research is a protein specifically called Pick one or protein interacting with C kinase one, and it plays a role um, with cocaine addiction. So recently it was found that if the protein was not in the mice, then the mice had little to no behavioral effects if they ingested cocaine, but did not have that protein in their bodies. So now that's kind of our goal is targeting this protein to address the same issue we can't remove, we're not going to remove the protein, But instead, we want to inhibit it or stop it from functioning, essentially.
0: So someone could, if that was able to be done, you could take a substance like cocaine, but you wouldn't feel the effects of it.
4: Essentially, yes, that's our goal with it. So this would help people that are struggling with substance use. This would help them in a possible treatment to get over their addiction. But it would not treat the addiction itself.
0: What led you to want to focus on this? What was your interest in this?
4: Yeah, so I actually grew up in, like, eastern Kentucky in a really small town. So this is kind of, like, the center of the opioid epidemic or where it, like, originated from. So I grew up having a lot of personal effects from it and seeing it firsthand. Um, So I knew from, like, a younger age that, like, I wanted to help people that were struggling with substance use and figure out a way to do it. Um, And then I fell in love with chemistry in high school. And so then I was like, this is my route to do it.
0: What could this look like out there in the world?
4: So I, I guess I should specify, I'm a computationalist. So I don't actually do experiments, I don't mix the chemicals. So we're kind of like on the drug discovery side, which pays a benefit because instead of experimentalists having to test out a thousand possible combinations of something, we can narrow that down to say 10 and give them those 10 options in a lot less short of a time span. And then our, com- our computational costs are not nearly as much as what an experimentalist would be. So we can kind of shorten the process of drug discovery by doing this firsthand and narrowing it down and then sending it off to experimentalists to see how it would act in our bodies or what it would look like once it was placed inside of our bodies.
0: So this is an interesting idea someone who's addicted to opioids for instance they could have the protein suppressed and so they would use but get no effect from it essentially
4: yes so then like kind of the thought behind that is why would someone use and spend money and stuff on something that they know they're not going to get an effect from so then because everybody has their weaknesses so you know All it takes is one bad day that someone is having in order for them to relapse or fall back into old patterns. And this would kind of help in the process of that. So even if they did, they wouldn't get that feeling from
0: it. Do we know enough yet to know, would it have to be a specific protein tied to a specific substance or is it one protein could hit a number of different substances?
4: Yeah. So, so far, it's only been proven with cocaine that it it plays a role But the way it works, it has the potential, and it would make sense that it would affect like fentanyl and stuff, too, that it would play a role in that. It just has not been proven yet.
0: So what do you hope to do uh, in the rest of your graduate school career and then after you get your degree?
4: Yeah, so I hope to continue with my research. Um, I'm really passionate about it. So it's kind of like I enjoy coming to work every day because I'm fulfilling what I want to do, I guess. So I hope to graduate in the next two to three years. And then once I graduate, I want to go into the pharmaceutical industry and then hopefully pursue research within the pharmaceutical industry and essentially continue what I'm doing.
0: Now, the pharmaceutical industry had a big hand in creating this problem. Do you foresee that you'll be interested in trying to solve it?
4: <laughs> yeah, no. So and that's where like I get a lot of that because it's like, they are the ones that push the whole overload epidemic, right? And that's what I always say. Like, Pharma is like a good, big bad guy. So, like, if I can just be like the one good guy, then that's all that matters to me. Like, there has to be like someone trying to push against them. And like, they're the ones with the money and power at the end of the day. Like, you can't always fight that, but you can do something. So, like, what it amounts to, you can't know. But I'm not in it for the money, which is typically what pharmaceuticals is. Um, That's not a concern to me. So it's like if I'm at like a little small mom and pop research facility, that's completely fine as long as I'm knowing what I'm doing is morally
3: correct.
0: That was Emily Hendricks, a Ph.D. student in the chemistry and biology program. She took second place in the Lobo Bites competition recently, where students have three minutes to showcase their research. We're highlighting some of them on University Showcase today. And finally, we have the winner. Hi, my name is Andrea Erlin.
5: I am currently in the Ph.D. program for special education at UNM. My background's in students with disabilities, but I started my career working with adults with intellectual and developmental disability. There is a major, major deficit in resources and support and health and information for people that are incredibly vulnerable, incredibly marginalized. And it's not just about helping People learn about the dangers of relationships and intimacy and sexual health. It's just giving them the information that they need in order to be empowered and make their own choices, right? So the research that I did was looking at, okay, well, what supports are there? Essentially, there's not really anything in the U.S., right? Biggest thing is that the research that I found had to be peer-reviewed. And it needed to be specific towards individuals with intellectual disability. And it needed to talk about perspectives or supports of uh, aspects of sexual health for them. And unfortunately, I had 10 articles.
0: Do you have a sense of why there's such a deficit? Is the idea of promoting sexual health and information among people with intellectual disabilities just something that people who are delivering services don't want to go into? I mean, we used to have eugenics in this country where people like this were sterilized. Is this still, do you think you have a sense of that's a holdover from that? I mean, personally,
5: I I really do. The idea of people with disability goes way, way back. And then you have all of those things where a lot of people with disabilities were kind of sent off to monasteries or other areas of care and then kind of During the period of enlightenment, there was this ideology switching to, oh, well, this is our community. Let's take care of our community. And then came the institutions. And when they were in these institutions, it was seen as they are asexual. Or if they engage in this activity, it is just going to produce more deplorable people. Right. One of the very famous cases is uh,
0: Carrie Buck. Oliver Wendell Holmes said three generations of imbeciles are enough when he allowed her to be sterilized, right? Yes, that's absolutely correct.
5: It really saying we don't need any more of these people. So thousands and thousands and thousands, and and I'm sure even to this day, people forced to be sterilized. So you want to talk about women's rights and reproductive rights. Have they ever really um, in the United States been given that right? I couldn't definitively and confidently say yes. So in research that I did, a lot of it has to do with parents don't feel comfortable. That's where most of their information is coming from, is from their parents. Students in public education who have an intellectual disability are receiving sexual health support. So they may get something about like feminine hygiene, but are they learning what a healthy relationship is? Sometimes it just kind of depends on the teacher. And in a lot of the supports that they're given, especially in regard to having sex, right? It's painted in a very negative tone. It's, it's kind of like indirectly implied, oh, you don't want to do that. Bad things can happen. I mean, who's going to take care of that baby if you get pregnant, right? Despite the fact that we have very powerful organizations here in the United States that do advocate for their ability to have that right, you know, given the right supports, they have that right. It's Basic human rights.
0: So what you found when you went looking is like in academia, this is really not researched much at all.
5: No, no. And But one thing that really upset me was that there's a huge push towards that inclusive and comprehensive education that has to do with like gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, providing that kind of information. I wasn't able to find anything about that. So I work in in the high school setting with a variety of kiddos with a variety of disabilities. There was a female student, and I was a beginning teacher. We never talked about uh, sexual health. Very cool girl. You talk to her, you'd have no idea that she had an intellectual disability, right? Very invisible. Super charismatic, really funny, sweet. Fast forward 10 years. I'm driving. I'm getting on the off-ramp over there on uh, Central and I-25. I look over and I see the student and I say, "Hey, what are you doing?" She was begging, and got her in my car, took her, you know, to a restaurant, and I'm like, well, "Let's catch up. What's going on?" She was 22 years old. She had four kids already, all of which were taken from her. She was um, wrangled into sex trafficking. Had uh, already been arrested several times. Was addicted to drugs because, you know, she said she had met a guy who was really cool. Mm-hmm. And had she been educated, would she be in the same position?
0: What are your plans in grad school and what, what do you hope it, what kind of impact it will have?
5: I am hoping to not only find supports, evidence-based supports, that can help an entire population within our country, you know, be empowered, be autonomous, be love themselves, but also bring awareness to everybody who wouldn't normally think about it, right? Because the only way I feel like that there's going to be a big change is if everybody's on board. And I don't think everybody's on board because not everybody's thinking about it.
0: That was Andrea Aralin, a PhD candidate in special education and the winner of this year's Lobo Bites competition held recently at UNM. Thanks to Andrea and all my other guests who presented at the event, Lauren Hopped, Emily Hendricks, and Michaela Mililo, as well as the event coordinator, Professor Maria Lane. You can find this in all our episodes at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase.